So yeah, we're going to be looking at Luke 2254 all the way through to Luke 2325. But yeah, I'm just going to hand straight over to Josh, who's going to kick us off with the opening questions for this evening. Yes, it's great to be here. The highlight of the week. So yeah, the first question is, why do we feel guilt and how does it differ to shame? In my opinion, like guilt is like an action or something you say that's like wrong and then you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Whereas like shame is normally like your like a, your whole self and it's usually to do with yourself. Whereas guilt can like sometimes be related to something that affects others as well. I'd say shame is created by other people and guilt is from your insides, you, yourself. I don't know why, but this is kind of what popped to my head. So I was reading an article that was explaining how like dogs don't feel guilt, but obviously like when you give them into trouble, they look like they feel guilt and that's shame. So that's kind of like like how Arthur was saying, it's like somebody else like making the dog feel kind of like bad for what it did, but the dog doesn't like feel guilty for what it's done, if that makes sense. But it knows what it did was wrong because people are telling it that it's wrong. Sorry, <laughs> it's so random that I used a dog, but I just, I remembered reading that. I thought, oh, that's really cool. <laughs> I feel like shame can be put upon a person or a family or whatever based on like social things. Whereas guilt is something you can only really, it's like an emotion in, that you can only put upon yourself. Have you ever been in possession of knowing some really key information that no one will believe? And if you have, what is that situation? Basically, have you ever kept an important secret? Uh, I can relate to that, to be honest. It was when we were preparing to um, see if we could, if we could move, maybe we could move to France. weren't sure whether we were. God was asking us to move to France, and so my, my dad told me to keep up, keep it up, to, up to rats before he told people. And so it was a, it was a big thing that that was obviously going to change my life and other people and my family's life, and obviously involving the fact that my friends may never see me again. So, um, yeah, it was a big secret that I had to keep to myself. Like birthday surprises. If you're surprising, like, a, a family member with something. Same with dad's birthday last month, like, me and my sisters and my mum all had to keep the secrets, like, in so that he didn't find out what we were planning. Um, when my sister was pregnant, because I had to keep it a secret for, like, two months, and that was an absolute nightmare. So, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. All brilliant examples. So yeah, while you're thinking, I'm going to have a quick bit of a natter about why I chose these two questions. Um, and first, it's like, we've got this passage, we've got this amazing passage, which runs all the way from Peter disowning Jesus, which we looked at in the last couple of, last couple of weeks, where Peter says, I will never betray you. I will never let you down. Peter says that he will die with Jesus. But here we see, Peter completely lives up to the prophecy that Jesus said that he will deny him three times before the cock crows. And Peter sees this. He feels immense guilt for that, for that action. Guilt is often okay. Guilt is good. Guilt shows we recognise what we've done is wrong. Guilt is putting you in that situation where you realise, you know what, I messed up. Guilt would be me stealing from a shop and then realizing that that was a bad thing to do guilt would be, the shame part is completely different shame takes us on a journey it locks something so deep down inside us that we hide it from everyone we hide it from 
even the people we're closest to. And it's such a it's such a deadly thing, shame, because shame makes you create a whole different persona. Because you have buried this person so deep within you that even you forget about it. Shame is when we are hiding something. It is when we feel like we cannot possibly talk about something. Shame is the worst of the two. Guilt is good. Guilt shows that we've done something wrong. But when we let that become shame, we let that take hold over us. We let it put us in a place where we start to think that we cannot be forgiven for it, where we are hiding it from everybody, including God. And that is why I'm so, I so openly try to talk about things. I try to be vulnerable. I try to be honest, because when you do that, you're actively saying they won't hold power over you. You're getting rid of that shame because you see that people won't necessarily see you in a completely different light just because you made mistakes. Everybody has faults. Everybody has issues. Everybody has struggles. Everybody has areas where they feel like they couldn't possibly be accepted, couldn't possibly be loved, couldn't possibly be forgiven. But in all things, we see that God experienced that on the cross. God took on every single piece of pain that we could ever we could ever have. See, Peter doesn't let this get him down. He continues to do great things for the church. He continues to live out God's plan for him. He doesn't let this guilt turn into shame. He doesn't lock it down as a as a secret and hide it. He lets he lets himself get through it. He is open and he sees what he has done wrong and he repents. And so yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying with the whole question about how guilt is guilt is good, shame isn't as much. Of course we're we're in a place where if we are feeling guilty, we know we've done wrong. Realistically when we look and we think, yeah, this is going to be this is going to be perfect. It can't be perfect because it's not Jesus. And yeah, my second question about the position of having some really key knowledge that no one will ever believe. And here we've got Jesus. Jesus knows he's son of God. Jesus knows that he is the one true heir to God's throne. And he hides it because he knows that they're not going to believe him. He doesn't want to give them an even bigger excuse to put him through more torture than God has planned for him. When we see that uh, the chief priests and teachers of the law say, if you're a Messiah, then tell us. Like, I tell you, you will not believe me. Jesus has done so many great things on this earth and people are still betting against him. And so, yeah, that's kind of what I wanted to say. I will hand over to the amazing Benjamin Coombs and I hope you all enjoy your evenings. Thank you very much, Josh. Yeah, that was great. Before we get going, or would a couple of people like to read the passage? So the passage that we've got for today is 22 verse 54, all the way through to 23 verse 25. So if there's a couple of people who would like to split that up, that'd be great. I'll volunteer. Yeah, I'll read a bit. Peter disowns Jesus. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, but when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are, the one, you also are one of them. Man, man, I am not, Peter replied. 
About an hour later, another officer asserted, Certainly this fellow was, was with them, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. When Peter remembered the words the Lord had spoken to him, before the rooster crows today, he would disown me three times. He went outside and wept bitterly. The guards mocked Jesus. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophecy! Who hit you? And they, they said many other insulting things to him. Jesus before Pilate and Herod. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both of the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. If I, and if I asked you, you would not answer. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you are right in saying I am. And they said, why do you not need any more testimony? You've heard it from his own lips. Um, chapter 23. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with, with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and, and the teachers of the law were standing there, accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found him no grounds for the death penalty, therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with the loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, both of you. Yeah. So today, as I said, we're looking at 
the passage which is looking at Jesus's five trials that he undergoes from Luke 22 54 all the way through to Luke 23 25 it, it follows the story of Jesus going through being taken through several different trials and religious courts and legal courts and we see a whole kind of spectrum so the previous week Josh spoke on Luke 22 talking about Jesus in Gethsemane where we see him betrayed by Judas one of his closest friends we see the religious leaders and the soldiers and the servants they carry Jesus off they walk out of the garden of Gethsemane with Jesus the son of God He's being marched off by these chief priests, officers of the temple guard and the elders. And we can see in verse 53 of chapter 22 that they do this all violently with swords and clubs. You see, if you just read that account where they carry Jesus off from Gethsemane, it would be easy to imagine that Jesus must be some sort of dangerous criminal for he's treated like one. He's treated like a man leading a rebellion. But you see, this could not be further from the truth because Jesus is many things. He came to earth to bring many things, but he did not come to bring violent insurrection. And this has been a key theme that we've seen all the way throughout the Gospel of Luke. We've seen that Jesus has always come to just bring the good news. Palm Sunday, which happened about four or five days before this event. Palm Sunday, we saw Jesus riding in on a colt. No earthly ruler, no military leader, no great warrior came riding into a city to bring change on the child of a donkey and a horse. And we can see even not only from his actions, but also from his teachings. In Matthew 5 verse 9, he tells us, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And uh, later in that chapter, we see Matthew um, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 5 verse 38 to 40. We have this whole idea of turning the other cheek. You see, Jesus did not preach a gospel of violence, of insurrection, of denying the authorities. We can see that in Luke chapter 10, verses 27, Jesus talks about the greatest commandment. He talks about how the greatest commandment is to love God with everything, our hearts, minds and souls, and to love our neighbours as ourselves. You see, it's actually intrinsically wrapped up in Jesus's identity. Jesus's purpose for coming to earth was to bring peace but you see it was to bring two forms of peace horizontal and vertical peace we can see in isaiah 9 verse 6 that he is called the prince of peace this is this is talking about the messiah called the prince of peace and the hebrew word here is shalom which is different to peace as we would see it you see you'd imagine if i said peace to you Something that would probably spring to mind straight away would be the absence of conflict. Or perhaps it would be, you know, peace and quiet, you know, the absence of noise. You see, the definition of peace in the Oxford English Dictionary is this idea of either having freedom from disturbance or the absence of conflict. But you see, this is limiting. This is human peace. You see, the concept of the Hebrew concept of shalom is wholeness completeness fulfillment serenity it's a condition of peace in god that's the first type of peace that jesus comes to bring and the second one is irony which is a greek word for peace used by paul in his letters which talks about unity and accord you see there's this idea that 
here, as Jesus is being marched through all these different courts, as he's being marched through all these different religious and legal regions where they're trying to find something to pin on him, they can't do it because he came to bring peace. Yes, he also says that he came to bring division, but he didn't come to bring division in a violent manner. You see, Paul writes about this idea of horizontal and vertical reconciliation, this idea that when Jesus came down to earth, he came to unite people with each other and with God, this horizontal and vertical peace. You see, in Ephesians 2, verses 14 to 16, we can actually see um, Paul sums this up really quite nicely. So this is Ephesians 2, verse 14 to 16. For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made both who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandment expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Can you see here, Paul's getting at these two ideas. We have peace with one another in Christ, in Christ's church. And we have peace with God. We have this peace that Jesus came to bring. It's not simple human peace. It's this idea of unity, of shalom with God, of being right with God. You see, this is why Christ is pivotal. You see, without his sacrifice, the very foundation of our faith crumbles. You see, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. He writes, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. But you might be thinking in a world which is so divided, in a world which is present of so much conflict, of so much hatred, how can we be reconciled to each other, let alone reconciled to the perfect God who created us all when we have messed up so badly? And the only way to do that is through the totally innocent sacrifice of Jesus. And that's what Luke goes to great length to show here. You see, Luke records five trials to prove beyond all doubt that Jesus is innocent. He records five trials, five of which are inconclusive, five of which prove Jesus to be innocent. And it's important, again, to look at the, the context of this book. This book, Luke's Gospel, is written to Theophilus. We see this in verse um, verses one to four, right at the start of, of Luke's Gospel writing to most excellent Theophilus. Luke intends to give him a, a most orderly account of, of the things that have happened. And he wrote this to Theophilus because Theophilus was proceeding over Paul's trial, over Paul's trial in Rome. This is the test case for Christianity in first century. And this is why Luke wants to show that actually the foundation of the Christian faith is rooted in someone who is utterly blameless, who was wronged, by the authorities at the time. So the first trial, um, if you'll come with me to Luke 22 verses 54 to 65, this is the first trial and we can see that this is at the house um, of the Jewish high priest Caiaphas. Um, we can also see in the middle of this, you know, Jesus, um, Jesus's prediction about Peter denying him uh, is coming true. So we can see that, you know, they've just left Gethsemane. Verse 54, they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest house. And you've got Peter following at a distance. You have this interplay between Peter um, and the servant girl. He was like, oh, you know, you were with Jesus, weren't you? And she's like, she's asking him that. And Peter's like, no, you know, I, I was not. 
and he denies him. Rooster crows, and that's that's what goes on there. That's what we see. But you see, after this little interplay that we see with with Peter, sorry, with Peter in the courtyard, we see this next thing: Jesus in custody. Now, a couple of things I want to point out about this trial. We're not given much detail about the actual trial itself. Instead, Luke gives us the details where it goes against the law. You see, Luke wants to prove that this first trial is actually illegal. First thing, it happened at the dead of night. You know, we can see that they took them. They took Jesus in the middle of the night and it follows straight on to this. They're lighting a fire in the courtyard. This trial is happening at the dead of night. And this was illegal. It was prevented by the Sanhedrin and it was basically to prevent dodgy activity going on. It was to ensure that all trials were meant to be were meant to be carried out in daylight so that they were meant to be more upstanding. Here we have a trial going on in the dead of night. It's pretty suspicious. The next thing that we see is in verse 63 to 64, you see, they haven't even accused Jesus of anything. They haven't even passed judgment on him, but they're beating him and mocking him. Again, that's also um, that's also illegal. That's forbidden by Jewish law. So here we have this Jewish court led by the, the high priests that is contravening their own laws. This is what Luke's trying to get. At. He's trying to show how hypocritical and flawed the system was. And Paul talks about how um, how you can't beat people before passing judgment on them in Acts 23, verse 3. Again, he's in a similar situation. So if you want to check that out. But you see, Luke wants to show here through this that the Jewish authorities care nothing for actual justice. They just want to get their own back onto Jesus. They just want to get their own back onto this man who's been stirring up the crowds against them, who the crowds are hanging on to his every word rather than onto theirs. There's this conflict, this rivalry. Now, moving on to the second trial, uh, chapter 22, verses 66 to 71. Same group of people, exactly the same group of people who trialed him overnight. But you see, they've got to do it in the day um, to, to make it legitimate. And the very existence of this trial actually proves that the first trial was illegal. You see, if the first trial was fully legal, why would they need a second one to have it done legitimately? It just proves, it just clearly undermines their, their whole kind of reasons behind it. We can see here, yeah, verse 66, when the day came, the assembly of the elders and other people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. So this is exactly the same people, but they just meet together in daytime so that it appears just. But we can see as they read on, the only fault that they find in Jesus is that he claims to be the son of man and the son of God. We can see that Jesus is, they ask him in verse 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus is pretty blunt. And he just says, if I tell you, will you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. And then he goes on to say, but from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And then they ask him, are you the son of God? And he says, you say that I am. You see, they would have understand this, this claim to be the son of man and the son of God. This idea of being son of man and son of God, it comes back to this 100%. It shows son of man, 100% man, son of God, 100% God, 100% of the time, as Josh would like to say. He's fully human and fully divine. And this phrase son of man is has been used before in the Old Testament, which they would have known so well. Used in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, um, son of man, it, it's referring to the Messiah and in 1 Chronicles 17, verses 13 to 14, there's another reference to the Son of Man. These are all names for the Messiah, um, God's anointed, God's chosen one. You see, 
what Luke wants to get at here is even though they accuse Jesus of blaspheming, even though they accuse him of blasphemy against God, in verse 65, jumping back a little bit, it reads, and they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. You see, Luke's saying that the, the real blasphemers here are the Jewish high priests because they are refusing to accept. They're refusing to be open to the idea that Jesus is the son of God and they're rejecting it. So we've had these first two trials. They've been with the Jewish authorities, the Jewish high priests. But you see, the thing is, there were two judiciary systems, two legal systems running in um, in Jerusalem at that time. You have the Jewish system and the Roman system. Now, the Jewish system kind of operated inside the Roman system. It had power to some extent, but it did not have the power to execute. And that's why they have to go to um, Pontius Pilate. So this trial, this third trial here at the start of chapter 23, before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. And you see, like I said, the reason for this is Jesus here is going through two systems of justice, Jewish and Roman. Jewish system didn't have enough power to execute him. Hence, they have to go to the Romans. But we can see that at this trial, it's even clearer that the Jewish authorities have no regard for justice or being upstanding or correct in their trials. We can see verse two. This is the whole company who had been accusing Jesus uh, in the previous two trials. They, they come up to Pilate and they say, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give taxes to Caesar and saying that he is Christ. Now, two of those they have completely made up between the end of 22 and 23. They've just somehow magicked out of thin air this idea that Jesus is misleading their nation and forbidding them from paying taxes. Because the reason they do this is because they know that just saying that, look, this guy's claiming to be the son of God, that's not going to get Jesus the punishment that they want him to get. We can actually see, though, that like this idea of them saying that Jesus is opposed to paying taxes is absolutely ludicrous. If you remember back to four or five weeks ago when we looked at paying taxes to Caesar, Luke 20 verse 25 reads, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God what is God's. Jesus literally says, look, you've got to pay your taxes. This is said when Jesus is talking to the spies of the religious leaders in front of a big crowd. He is explicitly commanding them to pay taxes to Caesar. So clearly Jesus is innocent. So this first trial, we've got the accusations that have been laid out. Now, what's the result of this? In verse two, despite these false claims about Jesus, despite claiming that he's leading insurrection, stopping them paying taxes and saying that he is the Christ. Verse four, we can see Pilate's response. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate says that he's innocent. He declares Jesus innocent. But we can see that Pilate lacks the moral backbone to actually do what's right. You see, he's acting here totally in the interest of self-preservation. He knows that the Jewish leaders are jealous of Jesus. He knows that the Jewish leaders are jealous of the way that Jesus speaks with such authority. Now, actually, John records in his gospel, uh, John chapter 19, verse 12, it reads, um, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, saying, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. You see, Pilate's livelihood is a threat here. His job is a threat. You know, he knows that if he goes against the Jewish leaders, they're going to put a bad word. They're going to put a bad word about him in with Caesar and he's probably going to lose his job. And he submits to that self-preservation. But 
something quite ironic is that actually um, in the historical writings of the time, uh, in Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews, shortly after this event, shortly after Pilate has tried to keep his own hold on power, he actually lost his job. He lost his governorship over a separate incident. Um, and he was recalled to Rome in utter disgrace and he never recovered. He never regained his post as governor. And we can see that, you know, that's why it's so key that we don't act in self-preservation. So that's the third trial. We see they're accusing Jesus of false things. What does Pilate conclude? Pilate concludes that he's innocent, but Jewish leaders won't take no for an answer. So we can see this next passage here in verses six and seven. When Pilate heard this, he hears that Jesus is from Galilee. He's got a lifeline. So what he does is he talks to, uh, he basically sends Jesus to the guy who managed Galilee. Jesus was originally Galilean. So he sends him to Herod the Tetrarch, the regional leader of Galilee, almost like the, the manager of that zone, if you will, which is where Jesus was from. And this leads us nicely into the fourth trial. Chapter 23, verses 8 to 12. And this is meant to show how awful Roman justice is. This is meant to make Theophilus cringe when he's reading this because he's, he's meant to see hang on what what is this justice system it's meant to polarize the innocence of jesus with the awful shamefulness of the roman justice system so we can see here you know this is unique for that reason uh, it does it's not written about in any other gospel other than luke because luke wants to highlight how flawed roman justice is now verse eight we can see that Herod, so Herod's currently in Jerusalem at the moment, it's Passover, everyone was kind of in Jerusalem. Um, so he sends him to Herod and Herod asks him loads of questions. Verse eight, he plies him with questions. He wants Jesus to perform like a circus animal. He wants him to do, um, to do a miracle, to do a sign, to do some miraculous thing that would make him entertained, I assume. We can see that, you know, the way that Jesus is treated here is awful. Verses 11 and 12. So verse 11, Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. We see that verse 11, Jesus is dressed up in this ornate robe. He is mocked. He is beaten. He's a prisoner of the state, yet he is ridiculed and mocked. We can see that in verse 12, uh, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. There was often a lot of competition between the Roman governors um, in, in the provinces. But we can see here that Herod and Pilate are both united in their common disregard to the justice system. We can see that, again, Jesus is innocent. Even when he's treated shamefully, he still does not speak in anger. Even when he's replying to the accusations that are made about him. He speaks calmly. He doesn't speak very much at all to him, even though he had the ability to summon legions of angels, to have thousands of angels just in front of him at the just at one word. But we can see how humble he is by going through with this. And this takes us on to the final trial, our fifth trial again before Pilate a second time. But you see, this time he's before Pilate, the chief priest, the rulers and the people. Verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. That's the accusation. They're accusing Jesus of insurrection. 
of kind of rising up against Rome, causing riots, just generally disrupting the peace. But we can see actually verse 14, Pilate makes another declaration. He says, and after examining him before you, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Pilate didn't find him guilty. He's declaring that Jesus is innocent. Totally. Verse 15 reads on. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. And then reading on in verse 15, nothing deserving death has been done by him. We can see that he is declaring Jesus is totally innocent, totally innocent. But moving on to verse 18, we can see that actually the Jewish leaders will not take no for an answer. Look how they rile up the crowd. They're all crying out together. The crowds are fickle. Four days ago, literally the start of the week, they were laying down their coats. They were laying down branches. They were, you know, singing the words of the Messianic prophecy from, from the Psalms. But here they're crying out for his death, for his execution. Despite Jesus's perfection, despite being fully upstanding, perfect, blameless, sinless. This is again repeated by Pilate in verse 22. He says, verse 22, a third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. But you can see that in an attempt to keep the peace, in an attempt to keep the people happy, he releases a convicted murderer. A convicted murderer walks free and Jesus, the perfect son of God, is condemned. But we can see, looking back over these five trials, the two with the Jewish leaders, the first one with Pilate, the second one with Herod, and the final one with everyone there, and the crowd in included. We're meant to take heart, because while Luke is writing this to show Theophilus the past Roman injustices, just take a minute to think. Here we have two legal systems being run by Jesus's sworn enemies. And if over the course of five trials, they still could not find him guilty, then he truly is, as John says in chapter one, verse 29 of his gospel, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that should be of great encouragement to us. Because if even Jesus's sworn enemies could not find him guilty of anything, it's clear that he must have been perfect holy and blameless and he had to be that perfect blameless innocent lamb in order to atone for our sin in order like that peace i was talking about in order to bring horizontal and vertical peace he had to be the perfect blameless son of god and yeah that's what we're going to see next week um with why that's so significant with to the lead up to good friday uh, and easter sunday um so yeah that's that's actually what i'm going to talk about for this evening um i'll hand back to josh if he's got anything else to say um while i'm just sorting out the breakout room but yeah other than that that is all from me for this evening i love when ben speaks does anybody else just love his conviction you can really hear god and yeah i just love how jesus even with five trials even with five horrific moments this whole journey we still see that he is putting god first he has so many opportunities to turn around and just be like you know what, this isn't what I want. This isn't, and then for many of us, 
we wouldn't have even made it past that first trial if we were without the heart that he had. And that's what set him apart. He leaves the Holy Spirit with us. He leaves that same power that dwells in him with us. But he allows God to be at the centre of it all. 100% of the time, as we always say, 100% man, 100% God, 100% of the time. That's, yeah, I just loved tonight. Don't really think there's anything else I really want to add. So, yeah.